Go ahead and have a seat, Vertical Church. Good morning. A.W. Tozer once said, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions upon millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, but they are not saved. You know, many here question if they are actually saved, and you are saved, and I want to every week, week after week, convince you through the objective and accomplished work of Jesus Christ that you are saved. And yet some of us here think you are saved and you are not saved. And that is my greatest fear as a pastor. And today, Jesus wants to wake you up, wake us all up. The question here is, how can you know you're real? How can you know you're legit? According to Jesus, how can you be certain that the Spirit is indeed in you and you are, in fact, saved? Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, to set the stage, remember the first 10 chapters of Mark take place over three years. Now chapter 11 to the end of the book will take place over seven days. Today's passage takes place on Monday. Jesus will be dead by Friday. Yesterday was Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and displaying to everyone that he is, in fact, the Davidic king, the Messiah that all creation has been waiting for. And so Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes directly to the temple, he looks around, and then he and his disciples go out to Bethany and call it a night. So that's where the passage picks up. We're looking at Mark chapter 11, verse 12. If you're there, say nice and loud, there. Okay, guys, let's lean in here. These are God's words. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in the leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus curses the fig tree. What do we do with that? I have never known what to do with this passage. Most of us have no idea because it seems so uncharacteristic of Jesus. In fact, this is the only destructive miracle in Jesus' ministry. All of Jesus' other miracles are uh, restorative, they're healing, they're calming. Here, Jesus sees a fig tree from a distance, and it says he walks over to see if he can find any fruit on it. He can't find any fruit on it because the text tells us it's not even in season, and Jesus could have done a miracle of like, whammo, fruit. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He gets mad at the tree. He starts yelling at the tree. He's like, may no fruit ever bear on you again. I don't know if his disciples are like pulling him off. Like, Jesus, easy, dude. Like, it's just, it's December, right? Like, what do we do with this passage? It's bizarre. It does not seem like characteristic Jesus at all. Well, to understand what just happened there, we need to understand two things. One thing about 
Palestinian fig trees and the other about the Old Testament. So in Jerusalem, at this time of year, there were little nubs or nodules that would grow on a fig tree about six weeks before the leaves and then the figs came in. Travelers would often eat these nubs, and if it wasn't uh, the season for figs, they would walk over and eat the, the nodules. And so if a fig tree had its leaves in, but there were no nubs, that tree would not produce figs. It was a fruitless tree. The second thing we need to know is that all throughout the Old Testament, a fig tree is an image of God's people, Israel, and a barren fig tree is the picture of God's judgment on his people. So here's what's happening. Last night, Jesus entered the temple and saw fruitless religion. This morning, Jesus, being all-knowing, intentionally leads his disciples to a fruitless tree to act out a parable that will explain what's about to happen today. If you've been riding with us through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen several of what we call Markin sandwiches. Uh, a Markin sandwich uh, is a literary technique that Mark employs throughout his Gospel to, that takes um, two stories, the bread, to clarify and communicate the middle story, the meat, more powerfully. So the bread is the lens through which we are supposed to interpret the meat. So the first piece of bread on Mark's fig sandwich is Jesus cursing the tree. Now, through that, let's focus and feast on the meat. It's verse 15. It says this, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." When Jesus calls it a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah 7:11, and the idea is that thieves would come into Jerusalem, rob people, and then go and hide in the mountains. And what Jeremiah and now Jesus are saying is that God's people are treating God's house like a cave to hide in. Hide from whom? God. Like a child playing tag, the Jews thought the temple was the safe zone, which they could be sheltered from the wrath of God. And guys, just catch what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you want to find people far from God, don't go to the clubs, go to the churches. When you're trying to hide from God, houses of worship make the best hiding places. So Jewish pilgrims have traveled all across the ancient Near East to celebrate the Passover here. Jesus walks into the center and kicks everyone out. And for us to, to fully appreciate this, we need to know how many people were actually here. In AD 65, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus actually counted the number of lambs that were offered here at the temple during Passover now, because lambs were extremely expensive, often about 10 Jews would go in together and co-offer a single lamb together. 
Well, Josephus counted 255,600 lambs, which could compute to about 2.7 million Jews gathered here at the temple. To see such scope, I have some pictures of the Hajj uh, in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Um, Yeah, look at the next one. This is considered the world's largest human gathering. In 2019, it had 2.5 million pilgrims. And I show you this to say, guys, what kind of man can walk into the center of that and send everybody home? Like, what was the volume of his voice? What was the strength of his hands that that flipped temple tables like they were props? What what was the look on his face that told not hundreds, not thousands, but thousands upon thousands of people, yo, he's not playing, we got to get out of here. Like, Jesus was not just a man, he was the man. And we need to have a category that while his heart was gentle and lowly, at times such zeal for his father's house consumed him that he could walk into a crowd like that and make everyone run. So why was he so infuriated? What ignited in Jesus' crowd-clearing fury was that, like the fig tree that looked fruitful from a distance, once he got up close to see if there was any real fruit, any legitimate life, he found just leaves. And right now, through the living and abiding words of Mark 11, Jesus wants to come up close to vertical church and come up close to our hearts and see if there's legitimate life or just leaves. In a redemptive sense, you guys, today, Jesus wants to cleanse this church and these hearts of worship that looks fruitful from a distance, but once he gets close, he sees it's just leaves. So let's let him get close now. Verse 15, Jesus cleansing the temple. They come to Jerusalem. It says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold And those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and those who sold pigeons. The first type of people Jesus cleanses his house of are those who treat his house not as a place of prayer, but as a place of profit. At this time, if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you had to bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed and atone for your sins. But remember, the Jews are traveling from distances that made carrying an animal to Jerusalem exceedingly arduous. And even if you did carry an animal all the way, it was common practice far too often for the priest to say, you know what, sorry, sir, this one isn't without blemish. This one isn't um, acceptable to God, but God is smiling on you because we have a lot of animals right here that are acceptable to God. And not only did the temple priests charge exorbitantly high prices for those temple animals, you also had to purchase those animals in the temple currency. And so you'd go to a money changer. And not only was the exchange rate borderline criminal, but you'd also have to pay then the temple tax. 
So you have the, the high price of the animal, the temple currency, the exchange rate, then the temple tax, and after all of that, even if you're a relatively wealthy Jew, you're probably only able to purchase a pigeon, which was considered the poor man's sacrifice. You guys, the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, and they have made it a place for profit. And now outside of wicked pastors who pay themselves excessive salaries, not many today use the church as a place for financial profit, but many of us are using the church and Christianity and even Jesus himself to profit in much more subtle and sanctified ways. I'm talking about consumer Christians, and they fill every church in America, including this one. Those who sold in the temple and consumer Christians are asking this question, what can I get from church? What can I get from the church? You see, in America, we're just coming out of a historical experiment called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity was this idea that we could take the broad principles of Christianity and apply them into civil and social contexts, and that would create a social order and a collective moral compass that would promote human flourishing and in turn make us the greatest country this world has ever known. And so our founders built into the fabric of our nation in God what? We trust. And one nation... And our founders were right, it did create the most prosperous country this world has ever known. It also created the most prosperous Christians this world has ever known. See, for over 200 years, being a Christian in America meant certain social benefits. Christianity won you respect in your community. It would help you get jobs, it would help you make friends, it even help you win elections. I mean, up until recently, it was unthinkable that our president wouldn't be a professing Christian. If you remember, the scandal around JFK was that he was Catholic and not Protestant, right? For over 200 years, being a Christian in America meant it would actually improve your comfortable, middle-class American life, and while Christianity is sharply coming, uh, cultural Christianity is sharply coming to an end, meaning it's no longer advantageous to flout your faith, the residual side effects of me-focused, consumeristic, what can Christianity get me, Christianity, runs deep in all of us. So let me just ask you, why are you here? because you want good music and an equally convicting slash inspirational sermon? Because you want some kind of therapeutic experience to deliver you from your really hard week? Because you want to add sense of, uh, of meaning and mission to your life, your already designer life? To press deeper, why are you a Christian? So you can get forgiveness of your sins so you can get eternal life? John Piper writes, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural desires, 
Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The consumer Christian, if they're being honest, would say, yeah, if I could have all of that and Christ weren't there, I'd still be happy. And Jesus wants to make us into a people who would say, what do we call heaven without the presence of Jesus? Hell. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What's prayer? Prayer is conscious, conversational communion with Christ. So guys, we come to Christ to get Christ. He's the gift of the gospel. He's the thing we want. And yes, we're unspeakably thankful for the benefits of the gospel, but we must not confuse the benefits of the gospel with the substance. It's not wrong to want the gifts of God, but when we consumer Christians come to God for his gifts, we make his gifts our God, and thereby we discard the one and true God. See, consumers are in every church. It's just leaves. And because Jesus is so merciful, he wants to cleanse our church and he wants to cleanse our hearts from seeking to use him as a means from some other end. A means to some other end. But notice, guys, he doesn't just kick out those who are selling. Read more carefully in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now he's infuriated at another group of people, the Jews who are purchasing the animals to sacrifice. Certainly Jesus on his mind was Isaiah 1.1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. So what was he mad at? Well, he's mad because at one time, sacrificing was a sincere act of faith and repentance that the Jews did in faith of a coming Savior, but at this time it was just theater. Once a year they would come and offer an animal and then they would go away unchanged and live in the same sinful patterns they had for thousands of years. God says in Amos 5, even though you bring me your burnt offerings, I will not accept them, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The second type of people Jesus cleanses his house of are those who treat his house not as a place of prayer, but a place for performance. If the first type were the consumers, they are the, um, if the first type were the consumers, these are the religious. And the questions these people are asking is, what must I do? What must I do? These are the box checkers who come to church, maybe even have an emotional experience at church but have no intention of changing the way they live. Their Christianity at its core is theater. It's performance for God. And those of us who are performers at our our heart, we're, we're good at talking the talk. In fact, we're the best at talking 
the talk. We know when to raise our hands in our songs. We know when to go, mmm, that's good, during the sermon. And while we moo at the message, have, do we have any attention of being moved by the message? I'm here. I'm going to be here while I'm here. But I have no intention of actually changing how I spend my money or my time or how I use my phone or how I live my life. Performance blends in here better than anyone. And y'all, it just leaves. It just leaves. And there's a third group of people here too. The third group of people that Jesus cleansed the temple of, see it in verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. See that? In an amazing act of irreverence and disrespect, people had begun using the temple grounds as a shortcut into the city center. Verse 16 is a reference to those, they're not there to sell, they're not there to buy, they aren't even there to worship at all, I'm just simply passing through. The third type of people Jesus cleanses his house of are those who treat his house not as a place of prayer, but a place for pathways. If the consumers are asking, what can I get out of this? And the religious are asking, what must I do here? The pathway people are asking, where, where might this take me? Where can this take me? In high school, the spirit had not regenerated my heart yet, but I would go to church nearly every Sunday. Why? Because I sincerely thought that if I would go to church on Sunday mornings, I would play better football the following Friday. I sincerely thought if I could just give him a nod on Sunday mornings, he would help me out on Friday nights. Guys, that's verse 16. I'm just there, man. I'm just passing through. Just passing through. How about you? Are you following Jesus because you think he's going to help you go places? Sadly, all of us in various degrees use the church, even use Jesus as a pathway to the things we actually want, a stress-free life, deliverance from discouragement, a successful career, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse, a friend group. Guys, that just leaves. Today, through the washing of the word, Jesus wants to cleanse us from the propensity to use him as a pathway to something we want something that isn't named Jesus. And so Mark 11 is Jesus walking into this massive temple gathering and cleansing it of those who want to use his house as a place for profit, a place for performance, and a place of pathways. And how do the religious leaders respond? See in verse 18. It says, And the chief priests... And the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Once again, the religious leaders want to destroy Jesus, which they will do by the end of the week. 
And once again, the crowds are astonished, though they will be chanting crucify by this time Friday. Yet Jesus and his disciples go to sleep, and now Mark gives us the second piece of bread in verse 20. Are you still with me? Say there if you're there. Okay, good. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Can you see what Jesus is doing? The first piece of bread, verses 12 through 14, Jesus takes the disciples to a tree that is just leaves. Then in verses 15 and 19, the meat of the passage, Jesus takes his disciples to a temple that is just leaves. And now to juxtapose what they witnessed yesterday, both on the tree and in the temple, Jesus now tells us the signs of legitimate life, true fruit. The first sign is faith-filled prayer. Faith-filled prayer. Apparently, according to Jesus, the measure of our spiritual vitality is believing prayer. In other words, where your prayer life is, that's where your spiritual life is. Prayer is the truest gauge of how your relationship with Jesus is actually going. And now that's hard to hear. That's hard to say. Because if I were to ask everyone, and I won't, and if I, but if I were to ask everyone to raise their hand, and I won't, to say, who, whose prayer life leaves some to be desired? Every hand in this room would would be raised. And I just want to say to that, if you are wanting a deeper prayer life, that in itself is evidence of legitimate life. People without the Holy Spirit don't desire increased intimacy with Jesus. But in stark contrast to the fakers in the temple, the first sign of true fruit is faith-filled prayer. Look at the second sign in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. The second sign of legitimate life is flowing forgiveness. Gosh, that's hard to hear too, isn't it? Lewis said, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. So we should know here that Jesus is not saying that we should forgive in order to be forgiven by God. That would be works righteousness, and it would stand against everything else Jesus said and taught. Rather, what Jesus is saying is this, forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. That's why I use the language flowing forgiveness. A sign of legitimate Christian life is 
if forgiveness is more and more flowing out of you. In other words, God doesn't make forgiveness cul-de-sacs. People who receive forgiveness and then just keep it to themselves. No, no, he, he only makes forgiveness channels. People who receive forgiveness, and not perfectly, not as quickly or as easily as we should, but nonetheless, people who allow the forgiveness of God that is continually overflowing onto them to eventually flow through them and extend to everyone in their lives. Coming to church and being a Christian for profit, for performance, for pathways, that's just leaves. But if you are growing ever so slowly, and not linearly, but growing nonetheless, in faith-filled prayer and flowing forgiveness, be encouraged. That's the sign of legitimate life in the Spirit. Now, I need to show you one more thing that is theologically crucial to see here and something that I think the ESV translation committee got wrong, and I don't say that often. Look up to uh, the heading of right above verse 15. The heading right above verse 15, mine says, Jesus cleanses the temple. Is that what yours says? Yeah. I don't think that's strong enough. The whole point of Mark's sandwich is to communicate what Jesus did to the fig tree, he did to the temple. And did Jesus cleanse the fig tree? No, no. He cursed the fig tree. Verse 20, Mark makes sure we know it's withered down to its roots. You guys, this whole passage is Jesus not cleansing the temple, but cursing the temple. Look back at verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Most people use this verse to say, God wants to move mountains in your life right? If you have a mountain, God wants to move it. That might be true. That's not what this verse says. Jesus doesn't say, whoever says to a mountain, what does he say? Look closely. Whoever says to this mountain, he's talking about a specific mountain. He's talking about Mount Olivet. He's talking about the temple. Guys, he's saying, and, and being thrown into the sea is an image in the Bible of judgment. He's saying, through faith-filled prayer, this is radical, you can throw the temple away. And that's why the religious leaders want to destroy him. That's why they're going to destroy him. Because, guys, he's cursing the whole system. He's not just cleansing the temple of sin. He's cursing the whole thing itself. Just hang with me here because this is glorious beyond glory. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, the garden was the place where God's very presence dwelt. It was paradise because Adam and Eve could walk with God himself in undisturbed communion. But when humans sinned, that undisturbed communion was disturbed, and Adam and Eve were shut out of God's presence. 
And as they're leaving Eden, Genesis 3.24 says something really bizarre. It says, at the east of the Garden of Eden, God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now, perhaps that's literal. More likely, it's symbolic. But the point is, something happened in the fabric of the universe that the only way back into the presence of God would be by going under a sword. You see, the sword represents God's eternal and infinite justice. There, mu- there must be punishment for sin, and as sexy as it is to question God's justice today, we all agree with it in our bones, right? Re- remember the Nuremberg trials when the Allied forces rounded up all the Nazis that helped Hitler exterminate seven million people? Imagine if that judge at Nuremberg said, you know what, guys? You're in luck. I'm a pretty forgiving dude. You're forgiven. Court adjourned. The whole world would have cried out, right? Why? Because we know that when someone does something unspeakably evil, there must be justice. Someone must go under the sword. And so for hundreds of years, because God is merciful, he provided for his people a way back into his presence. Believing Jews could take a spotless animal, one without blemish, and sacrifice it on their behalf. And they did this for for hundreds of years, but there was two main problems here. One, the animal sacrifices didn't actually take away the sins. It was merely symbolic. It was a symbolic shadow of what was to come. But secondly, and massively, this didn't extend access to God to anyone but the Jews. The temple and the sacrificial system was only set up for Israel. So when Jesus walks in in Mark 11, throws everyone out of the temple, even those who are buying the sacrifices, and says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, he's flipping the table on everything. He's extending prayer. That's access to God to everyone. How? Because you know why he's in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem to go under the sword. 700 years prior, the prophet Isaiah saw this coming and wrote to in Isaiah 53, Speaking of Jesus, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Loved one, Jesus went under the sword for you. And when he did that, we're going to study this later, but Mark 15, 38 says the curtain of the temple, that curtain that divided God's manifest presence in the Holy of Holies, that little square garden of Eden, from the rest of the world, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the the sword outside of the garden fell on Jesus. The sacrifice that all those millions of animal 
sacrifices were waiting for and pointing to was fulfilled finally. Why? So that you and I could come back into the garden of undisturbed communion with God himself. That's Mark chapter 11. In Mark 11, Jesus is cursing the temple because in four days, he's going to replace the temple. And do you know what he's going to replace the temple with? You. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's what it means to say to this mountain, the temple, be thrown into the sea. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you, loved one, have full, free, final access to God himself. And so right now we're going to take communion. We're going to come to the table. And the reality, guys, is none of us are here None of us are following Jesus with perfectly pure motives. All of us want profit. All of us get stuck into some patterns of performance. All of us try to use Jesus as a pathway to something else, something we really want, something that's not named Jesus. And so what do we do? Well, we, we go to the blood and we come under the blood and as we come to the table, we repent of these impure motives. And the Bible says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins.